got your Bibles with you, going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to sort of be, the text is sort of spread out throughout Matthew 13, similar to what Mark had uh, last Sunday. So I'll, I'll give you the verses that we will be looking at, Matthew 13, we're going to start in verses 24 to 30, 24 to 30, then we'll jump down and read verses 36 to 43, which is really the explanation of this first parable that we're going to look at, and then we'll jump down again and read Uh, verses 47 to 50. So Matthew 13, verses 24 to 30, we jump down again, verses 36 to 43, and we jump down again and read verses 47 to 50 as we look at these two parables today. So Matthew 13, starting in verse 24, please hear this public reading of God's word. He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, verse 36, then Jesus left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, it is a privilege to gather here with your people each week and to sing with your people. It is a privilege. And now to open your word and to to study your word is a privilege. And Father, as we come to these maybe less known parables, both of them are extremely weighty. And so, Father, I pray that we would have an appropriate response Uh, to the weight of these parables. I pray that we would not be trivial in response to these, but that we would be sober, somber, serious in response to the weight of the parables before us today. But Father, I pray that the gospel would be clear and the gospel would be extra sweet today when we consider the weight uh, of these parables. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have two parables to look at today. Both of them are similar parables, but I want us to take them separately. 
going to take them separately. We're going to start with the first parable, but uh, before I get into it, there are going to be three points for this first parable, and then I'll have a separate point for the second parable. There'll be point number four. All these points will be interrelated. I want to start with this first parable, but before I get into the points, I just want to kind of get this parable into our minds. I want this parable to sort of just wash over us, and just so we can have a basic understanding of the parable. And first, we'll just take it on the surface level. I just want us to try to get a surface level understanding of this parable, the parable of the weeds. What's going on in this parable? Well, it's pretty straightforward on the surface level understanding. You have a man who goes out into his field, and he sows good seed in his field. And after uh, he sows the good seed, when his servants are sleeping under the cover of darkness, you have an enemy. He does this subtly. He does this maliciously. And he does it with evil intent. He sows weeds amongst uh, the wheat that has been sown in the field. And then uh, after a time goes by, the crop begins to rise up. And then when the grain begins to appear on the wheat, the servants realize something is wrong. Verse 27, Matthew 13, verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Certainly they would have been accustomed to seeing some weeds, but there's so many weeds that they don't even, they're they're wondering, did the master even plant good seed at all? And then verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. He essentially says, let both grow together until the harvest. Then at harvest time, reapers are going to come. They're going to separate out the weeds to be burned and they'll gather the wheat into the barn. It simply sounds like a story of agricultural sabotage on a surface level. But the question is, what does this parable actually mean? What is the spiritual significance of this parable? And that's exactly what the disciples are wondering. Jesus continues doing ministry, continues telling parables, but the disciples, I think, are hung up on this parable. They don't understand what's going on here. They don't understand the spiritual significance. So what they do is they humbly go to Jesus and they ask him when Jesus leaves the crowds. Verse 36, then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house And his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And here is something commendable that the disciples do. They humbly go to Jesus when they don't understand the parable and they ask him to explain it to them. And here's some application for us before I even get into my points today. The application would be when we are struggling to understand the Bible, we want to humbly come to the Lord and ask him for help in understanding the text before us, just like the disciples did. I've quoted this before, but Spurgeon said, some text of scripture only open with the key of prayer. So we want to humbly go to the Lord when we don't understand the word and ask that the Lord would help us to understand. And so they humbly go and Jesus graciously gives the explanation of this parable and he goes down through it. And what is going on then spiritually in this parable? Well, he tells us starting in verse 27, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So who's the one sowing? It is Jesus, the Son of Man, is sowing this good seed. He's sowing it uh, in the world. The field is the world. It makes clear that there in verse 38. But the question is, what is this good seed? Well, this good seed is not the gospel as it was in the parable of the four soils. No, the good seed in this parable is genuine Christian believers. He is sowing the seeds that are going to sprout up in the world as Christian believers. That is to say that the Son of Man plants Christians in the world. And this has just been an encouragement to me studying uh, this parable. If you are a Christian here today, you are a Christian because Jesus Christ has made you a believer. You are the fruit of his labor and the work of his hands. So Jesus plants Christians in the world. And then what about the weeds and what about the enemy? Well, the middle of verse 38, Jesus tells us the weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So Satan comes in and tries to create mischief. He sows sons of the evil one in uh, the world. 
As Christ plants believers in the world, the devil works against him. Satan is ever-present, striving to put out the light of the world. There's an enemy, and he seeks to destroy the work of God. But of course, the malice of Satan cannot derail the designs of the Son of Man for the salvation of sinners. And now we come to the harvest uh, in this parable. And this is the main uh, teaching that Jesus is trying to push across, is the harvest time. He's trying to get us to think about the harvest. What is the harvest that is going to occur? Well, Jesus tells us clearly, middle of verse 39, the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus is expounding the major lesson, and that is what is going to happen at the final judgment. And Jesus makes clear what is going to happen at the final judgment. And when we begin to understand the significance, the spiritual significance of this parable, it is weighty. It is a weighty parable indeed. Jesus is telling us that there is a judgment coming on the horizon. And one pastor that I listened to, he said, what is missing from so many people is they are not living in light of this future judgment that is to come. They may not even believe in this judgment to come, but this judgment is coming, and that's what Jesus makes clear. And this judgment is going to be global in scope. It's going to embrace everyone from every generation is going to have to stand before God on this final day of judgment. So hopefully we have the main idea of this first parable in our minds. Now let me jump into my first point. The first point is judgment is necessary, or you could say final judgment is necessary. Judgment is necessary. You see, there is much evil in the world. There is much sin in the world. Therefore, judgment is necessary. One pastor said, the holiness and righteousness of God demand that he execute perfect justice on the final day. Another writer says this, however distressing the prospect of the final judgment may be, the question is this, do any of us really want to live in a world where nothing matters, where even the most extreme cruelty is met with silence, where people can commit evil acts and get away with it? Is that what we want? This author said, no. Thankfully, though, justice will be done. I love Genesis 18, verse 25, or a portion of that verse that says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It's a wonderful, comforting verse. It's a rhetorical question. Of course, the judge of all the earth will do right on the day of judgment. One pastor said, we can read horrific stories of of child abuse. Olivia was just telling me one last night, horrific story of child abuse. And you can read about people who committed these acts. And you read those stories and you know, we know that that evil demands punishment. Not only at the bar of human justice, but more importantly, at at the bar of divine justice, it demands punishment. You see, justice, judgment is necessary. I was listening to a Ligonier uh, Q&A recently, and I love the Q&As, and in this Q&A that happened recently, one of the speakers said something that just stayed with me. I just thought he said this so well, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he said this. He said, basically, he said, on the day of final judgment, you can stand before God in one of two ways. He said, first, you can stand before God on your own, in your own righteousness. That's just a terrifying thought, to stand before God in your own righteousness. Our own righteousness is filthy rags. If we stand before God in our own righteousness, we will face eternal condemnation. There's just no question about it. But he said there's a second way that we can stand before God. He said we can stand before God with a mediator. With a mediator. You see, Jesus is the mediator between God and men. 
And if we turn from our sins and we trust in his finished work, then we can stand before God covered in his perfect righteousness. And if we stand before God with a mediator, there will be no condemnation for us because that condemnation was spent on Jesus. There will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. But judgment is necessary. Point number two, judgment is delayed. Judgment is delayed. Again, verse 27 of Matthew 13. And the servant of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? My guess is, and different people said, that they imagine that the servants are likely angry about this fact that an enemy has come in and sowed all these weeds. They are probably angry. And it's as if they are saying, Let's bring judgment now. Let's gather the weeds now. Gather them up to be burned now. We want judgment now. But surprisingly, the answer is no to to gathering the weeds. Verse 29, the surprising part of the parable. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. So the question is, ultimately, why is judgment delayed? Why does Jesus say, wait? Well, one pastor said the reason why Jesus is saying wait is because God is a God of grace and patience. God is a God of grace and patience. This is why judgment is delayed. And time and again, pastor after pastor that I listened to quoted 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. I'll just follow suit because it, was, it fits so well with this point. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Peter writes this, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, this is why there is a delay in the perfect justice of God. It is so sinners like you and me have time to repent and believe the gospel. You see, every day that Jesus delays final judgment is another day of salvation for someone to come and to trust in the finished work of Jesus. So what's some application on this second point that judgment is delayed? Well, I think first and foremost, if you're a believer in Jesus, I think we should be moved and stirred afresh by the patience of God. Uh, in your own life. One pastor said he became a Christian in 1982 in his sermon on this text, and he said, had the final judgment come, he said, in 1981, he said, I would have been gathered up with the weeds and burned in eternal fire. I think that is just a good exercise. Think about your conversion. You may not know the day. I don't know the day, but I know the general time frame. So I can be sure in 2002 or 2003, had judgment come, I would have been gathered up with the weeds. I would have gone where my sins deserved. We should be stirred and moved by the patience of God. Secondly, for us as Christians, I think we should be patient as we wait for the final judgment to come. One commentator said this, As we are grateful for the fact that the day of judgment was put off until we were called, let us also be patient while the rest of our brothers and sisters are called. And there's a sense in which we grow tired of the evil and the sin in the world. And we say with the Apostle John, come Lord Jesus. I'm sure you've prayed that. I've prayed that. Come Lord Jesus. But there's another sense in which we know that judgment is delayed. And we want to be patient. We want to be faithful where we are. We want to build up Christian believers. We want to tell people the gospel and pray for conversions. And we know that God has good and wise purposes for delaying final judgment. What if you're not a Christian? What's the application for you? I would say for the unbeliever, this theme of judgment, this parable itself is a gracious warning and an invitation. God is still lavishingly offering salvation to all. 
Today is the day of salvation. I mean, we're seriously not promised tomorrow, but today is the day of salvation where you can turn and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This parable should be an invitation to trust in the finished work of Jesus. Point number three on this first parable. Judgment is certain. Judgment is certain. One pastor says this, Looming on the horizon, there is coming a terrifying final day of judgment. It is absolutely certain, inescapable, absolutely certain. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I just read, the beginning of verse 10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's absolutely certain, absolutely certain. I mean, look at our parable. Look at the word will. Jesus uses it again and again. Verse 40, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The judgment is certain. The question is, what is going to happen at this final judgment that is absolutely certain? What is going to happen? Well, clearly from our parable, you have a burning and a gathering. You have two different destinies. What you have in this parable is what you have in the Bible. The Bible splits people, everyone, into two different categories. You have those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You have wheat and weeds. Those who believe the gospel, those who reject the gospel. Those on the straight and narrow leading to life and those on the broad road leading to destruction. So you have two clear destinies here, heaven and hell, or the new heavens and the new earth and hell, and two types of people. Let's take the believer first. What's going to happen to the genuine believer at the final judgment? This is probably the sweetest verse of my text, verse 43, Matthew 13, 43, thinking about what's going to happen to the Christian. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, he who has ears, Let him hear. J.C. Ryle writes these words. Let the believer in Christ take comfort when he reads this parable. Let believers see that there is happiness and safety prepared for them. In the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God will proclaim no terror for them. The angels will summon them to join what they have long desired to see. The saints and faithful servants of Christ shall receive glory, honor, and eternal life. What a glorious thing it's going to be to be wheat gathered into the barn of the Son of Man at the final harvest. What a day of rejoicing. That will be as you are gathered into the Lord's arms as he bears you home, not to eternal destruction, which is what we deserve, but to eternal life where tears and pain are gone forevermore. What a day of joy for the Christian. Olivia bought me a a, a biography on Susanna Wesley not too long ago, and I just finished it a while back. Susanna Wesley, she was the 25th child in her family, and she would go on to have 19 children of her own, most famously John and Charles Wesley, most famous children. One of the parts of that biography that I really enjoyed was talking about her father. She had godly parents, but her father was an actual Puritan minister by the name of Samuel Ansley, and he died at age 76. But apparently this man was just saturated in the Bible, and he was on his deathbed. He's dying. His mind is, is fading. But apparently, even though his mind was fading, he was just still oozing out Scripture. I mean, you prick him, he's going to bleed Bible, just oozing out Scripture, even though his mind is fading. And uh, then the, com- the, the biographer says this, right near death, then the floods of holy joy so inundated his soul. He can't contain it. He, then he, explained, he exclaimed, here's Samuel Ansley, I cannot contain it. What manner of love is this to a poor worm? I cannot express a thousandth part of what praise is due to you. I will die praising you. I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Satisfied. Satisfied. Oh, my dearest Lord Jesus, 
icon, the joy that awaits the Christian at the final judgment. What about the one who rejects the gospel? The unbeliever, what will happen on the day of judgment for the unbeliever? Well, this is the weighty portion of the parable indeed. Let me read it again, verses 40 to 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, to quote J.C. Ryle, the worldly, the ungodly, the careless, the unconverted, shall be cast into a furnace of fire. There is something especially solemn in this part of the parable. Jesus is speaking of the terrible and everlasting doom of the unrighteous. The wicked will be justly cast into fiery punishment. R.C. Sproul wrote these words. He said, Jesus chose the most dreadful images in creation to describe the reality of hell. One is the image of darkness, another is that of fire, or a lake of fire. Here we have a fiery furnace. But Sproul said this, the reality of hell will be much worse than the symbol. He used the worst possible images, but the reality is going to be much worse than the symbol. And Sproul has this talk he gave, or at the end of the talk, he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, You may have seen it. I mean, it's just absolutely, would just strike home to you, make you sober instantaneously where he talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where he said some people will wake up in hell and it'll be the worst possible thing that they could imagine. Well, they will weep. He said they will not have enough tears to weep. He said others will gnash their teeth. They will be angry at God. And Sproul said this. He said he believed himself to be a genuine Christian. He had assurance of salvation. But he said if he found himself before Jesus, and Jesus said to him on that final day, depart from me. I never knew you. Sproul said, I would weep. He said, I would be a weeper. What's some application that we can draw from this third point? Well, I hinted at it in my prayer, but these issues here are far too serious for us to be trivial about. We cannot be trivial about them. I mean, final judgment is real. Heaven and hell are real. So we want to respond soberly and seriously. And I think we should be gripped afresh by these weighty truths. If you grew up in church like I did, you grew accustomed to hearing about heaven and hell and eternal life and eternal death, and we just know these truths up in our minds, but we can sort of just skate across them and not ponder them and think on them and be gripped by them. So I want to just tell a story here that maybe will help grip us a little bit on these weighty matters. It comes from the life of Adoniram Judson, a missionary. Many of you may know this story that I'm about to share. Uh, Judson was born in a Christian home in 1788. He had godly Christian parents. In his 20s, he would go to Burma. He would spend 38 years of his life laboring uh, for the spread of the gospel in a very difficult place. And if you've read anything about him or know anything about him, man, did he suffer greatly. Uh, we bought my dad an Adoniram Judson biography uh, for his birthday a few years ago, and I talked to my dad after he finished it, and he was just like, it was kind of a depressing read. I mean, you read his life, it's just one suffering after another, after another, after another. It was just very difficult to read. But Judson trusted through and through in the sovereignty and goodness of God, which makes his life really uh, compelling uh, to study. But he was a brilliant man. He was brilliant as a boy. At the age of three, he learned to read the Bible. And uh, just a very, very brilliant mind he had. He went off to college, Providence College, uh, as a teenager. And while he was there, he met another student who was a year ahead of him in school who was also brilliant. His name was Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames. 
And Jacob Eames was not a believer in Jesus. I think Jacob Eames had a magnetic personality. He was smart, witty, and he drew Judson in and sort of undermined Judson's Christian upbringing. And over time, Eames sort of prevailed upon Judson, and Judson out and outright rejected the Christian faith that he grew up with. But Judson concealed this information from his parents. He did not tell his parents that he was rejecting the Christian faith that he grew up with. He graduates valedictorian of, of his college. He was brilliant. He gives the valedictorian speech. His parents are there, but he, his speech was worded in such a way that even still, his parents didn't know where he stood, sort of, that he, was, that he was rejecting the Christian faith. Then, on his 20th birthday, 1808, he went to his parents and told them that he was rejecting the faith. Just, you have to feel for the, these parents right here. The pain this must have caused them. They, I mean, they're celebrating his 20th birthday and he tells them, you know, I'm just rejecting the Christian faith. But one biographer said that his mother just broke down weeping on the spot. And she started praying audibly for her son. And it said that her prayers followed her son the whole time he left because she was praying. She was on her knees just praying like, Lord, bring him home. Save him. Bring him home. And he asked, he tells him he wants uh, part of his inheritance right now. He wants a horse from his father, basically the prodigal son, essentially. And he was rejecting uh, the Christian faith. So six days later, his parents give him this horse. He takes off to live the, the life he wants to live. He lives this life of sin. Travels around, goes to New York. But the, the life he thought it was going to be wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. So I think he, he grew disillusioned by it. He decides he's going to head home after six weeks. And on his way home, he stops in this little town. I don't think he'd ever even been to this town. And he stopped at this little country inn. And I don't think he'd ever been at this country, country inn before. And he asked for a room. There was one room left. But they said it was going to be next to this young man who was very sick. And this young man may die that night if he was okay having this room. Justin said, sure, he was fine to have the room. So he went into the room, he starts to get settled in the room, but he begins to hear these moans and groans and cries from this young man who is very sick and perhaps dying. He hears people coming in and out, whispering and caring for this young man. And all of a sudden, I think Judson begins to think about his Christian upbringing. He begins to think about heaven and hell and eternity and begins to think, this man is young. Is this man ready for eternity? Is he prepared to face eternity? Well, what about me? What if it was me on the deathbed? Would I be ready for eternity? He's just wrestling through the night. And finally, late into the night, all the sounds next door go silent. And Judson is wondering, did this man take a turn for the worse or did he make it take a turn for the better? Well, he wakes up that next morning. The sun is shining in his room. He pushes all those thoughts of death and eternity out of his mind. He's feeling a lot better. He races downstairs. And of course, the first question to the innkeeper is, what happened to the man next door? And the innkeeper said, oh, well, I'm sorry to say, he died last night. And Judson said it was like the finality of it. Death just struck him again, the finality of it all. And Judson turns to leave the innkeeper. And as he's turning to leave, he turns back one time and he's, one last time and he says, do you know who he was? Do you know the man's name? And the innkeeper said, oh yes. He was a young man. He'd been a student at Providence College. His name was Eames. Jacob Eames. Judson was stunned by this. Just frozen in place. He stayed there for three hours knowing that this is not a coincidence. He knows this is a providential thing. His friend who drew him away from Christianity died next to him, in the same room next to him. And now he's thinking about all these things, death and eternity. And everyone talks about how this is sort of the first big domino that would fall in Judson's life. And several months later, he would come to saving faith. But this was the key moment in Judson's life to bring him to saving faith. And that's how most people will talk about this. But I want to come back to Jacob Eames. He was likely 21 years old. He rejected the Christian faith. And there he is on his deathbed. What happened to Jacob Eames? Well... One biographer 
wrote this one line that just sort of just staggered me when I first read it. This is what he said. What happened to Jacob Eames that night? He said that hell itself opened up and snatched Jacob Eames. You see, Jacob Eames stood before God in his own righteousness. He did not stand before God with the mediator, and he faced eternal condemnation. So I would just say, I hope that we are be gripped by the weighty truths contained in this parable. Secondly, the second application would be this. One commentator said this, A day is coming when judgment will happen. The wheat will be gathered into God's barn, and the weeds will be burned. As a result, here's the application, we should examine ourselves as to whether we are true children of God or not. And it just made me think of 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Mark has referenced this many times. Paul says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I think Spurgeon said some people don't even know this verse is in the Bible. We're supposed to test ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And I know we could spend a whole sermon just on that text, so I hesitate to comment, but I feel like I need to say at least something about this. If you're a genuine Christian, I don't want to shake you up (laughs) to the fact that maybe you're not. But if you are a nominal Christian, if you are a Christian in name only, I do want to try to shake you up. So here's what I would say. I mean, I grew up, professed faith at a young age, said I was a Christian. First 20 plus years of my life, I'm saying I'm a Christian. And everybody, I think, would have said he's a Christian. But the thing was, I was not a Christian. I was a Christian in name only. And then in my early 20s, something wonderful happened. I was born again. New birth happened. But what was the difference? What's this big difference? There's so many things I could say here, but what's, what was the big difference? Well, 2 Corinthians 4 would tell me when I was a nominal Christian, I was blind to the beauty of Jesus. I was blind to the glory of Jesus as a non-converted person. I did not care about the cross. I did not care about the word of God. I was bored by Jesus. But I had conversion. Your eyes are open to the beauty of Jesus. That's conversion. And then now the cross was compelling. The gospel was sweet. I was moved to tears. The word of God was alive. So if this is your, how you are fundamentally to the Word of God, if you're bored by the Bible, you're bored by Jesus. I'm not saying we can't have dry seasons, but I'm saying fundamentally, if that's you, you're bored by Jesus, then I do want to shake you up. Because your situation is perilous. But of course, Christ has died. I thought about John 6 today, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. We want to come to him with repentance and faith, trusting in his finished work. Okay, the second parable parable of the net. Verses 47 and 48, I'll read these as we'll think about again the surface level understanding of this parable. Let me read verses 47 and 48 of Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So the surface level understanding, very basic. You have this net. It was probably several hundred feet long, had weights on the bottom, floats on the top. You throw this thing in, slowly it sinks down, and basically every single fish that's caught in its path is going to be trapped in this net. And over time, it would take a long time, these guys would pull this net in, they open it up, and they sort the good from the bad. But what about the spiritual significance of the parable? Let's read verses 49 and 50. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
So again, this parable is dealing with the final judgment to come. I mean, that is clear. That's the spiritual significance of this parable. One commentator says this, The main thrust in this parable is the separation itself and the great misery that awaits the unbeliever beginning with that day. And if you'll notice that this is so similar to the last parable, so, so similar to verses 40 to 42, though this time there is no account of the destiny of the righteous as in verse 43. The focus is entirely on the judgment of the wicked in this parable of the net. So my question would be, why does Jesus give us these two parables that are so similar dealing with final judgment? One pastor said Jesus is stressing the certainty of that final judgment by repeating it. Another commentator said the parable of the net is similar to that of the weeds, emphasizing the horror of turning away from Christ and God's goodness. And another commentator said it is as though Jesus is saying with all possible emphasis, there is a coming judgment and the fate of the ungodly will be terrible in that day. So point number four, point number four, final judgment will be thorough and permanent. Final judgment will be thorough and permanent. First, it is thorough. It is thorough meaning it's going to involve every single person from every generation is going to be involved in the final judgment. And one commentator said, you will find yourself in one camp or the other. Either they will be the blessed in heaven, having been cleansed from all your sins by the redeeming work of Christ, or they will be in hell without hope. No one will be partially in one camp and partially in the other. So it's absolutely thorough, involving every single person, and it is permanent. It is permanent. Again, the same commentator said, nothing could be more permanent. Then the collecting of the good fish and the discarding of the bad or throwing the weeds into the fire to be burned. In that day, the opportunity for repentance will be over. The day for trusting in Jesus Christ will be past. It's absolutely permanent. This is the glorious thing about heaven. It's permanent. It's never-ending joy. The, the horror of hell, though, it's absolutely permanent. The day for trusting, trusting Christ will be past. remember listening to Joel Beakey who loved the Puritans. He was talking about the Puritans. He said the Puritans were constantly trying to get themselves to think about eternity. And he said they would go into a room like this and they would see an exit sign in the back and they would think there's no exit sign in hell. There's no exit sign in hell. It's absolutely permanent. So what's some application that we could draw from this second weighty parable? Well, one commentator said, given the separation that will then occur, it is exceedingly important how we respond to the message of the gospel. I mean, I can't overstate it. It's exceedingly important how we respond to the message of the gospel. So I just want to make clear that we understand what the gospel is. And if I had somebody in front of me and just had a couple of minutes to talk to them about the gospel, I think I would go to 1 Corinthians 15 and I would tell them what Paul says. I delivered to you as of first importance that which I received. What's first importance? What's the gospel message? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to all these people. And ultimately, he ascended. There's the gospel message, this wonderful good news that Christ has died for our sins. It's a wonderful good news proclamation. And it matters exceedingly how we respond to this gospel message. Will we repent and believe or will we reject the gospel message? Next, I would ask this question, why should we as Christians study the doctrine of hell? Certainly, it's not comfortable, it's not fun to study, it's not fun to think about. But why should we study the doctrine of hell? Well, I think several reasons. Number one, I would say because it's so clearly taught in the Bible. I was just reading a Spurgeon sermon where he goes through text after text after text of judgment and hell. I mean, just one after the other. And it's so clearly taught in the Bible, we should study it because it's so clearly taught in the Bible. I think secondly, we should study it because we don't tend to grapple with the terribleness of hell very often. I think Mark said last Sunday, if hell is bothering us, we shouldn't turn away from it. No, we should turn towards it and study it and grapple with it. 
Two more reasons I'll give. These come from R.C. Sproul. So reason number three, we should study hell because such an understanding should motivate us to seek the lost. Make that a priority in your life, he said. How could you not? How could you not feel burdened for people when you live in light of this final judgment? You should have a deep desire and compassion for people who don't yet know the Savior. I was reading a biography that Ian Murray wrote on John Wesley and different people who came after him, and he includes all these different stories. He'll just insert these quick stories in there. And he told this one, I don't even remember the pastor's name. This was probably 250 years ago. This guy was arrested. He stood before the magistrate. The magistrate asked this young man why he'd been arrested. And the young man said, well, I, have been in, I was arrested for warning people to flee from the wrath to come. And he said, if you release me, I will continue warning people to flee from the wrath to come. He said, you'll have to cut my tongue out before I stop telling people to flee from the wrath to come. Surely he was telling them to trust in the finished work of Jesus. Surely he was exalting the gospel, but he was burdened for lost people. He was willing to face prison for it. Lastly, the last reason why we should study the doctrine of hell. Sproul says this, the better we grasp the horrors of hell, the more we appreciate God's grace. The more we will appreciate God's grace. There was one commentator that I was reading. He talked about he had a friend of his who was not a Christian. And he knew he wasn't a Christian. But this man came under deep conviction of sin. And he knew that God was just and that God was rightly angry at him. And he knew that unless God's anger turned away from him, he was going to face eternal condemnation in hell. It was as if this man stood on the brink of hell. He just knew that's what he deserved. And then this man was marvelously converted. What happened to this man? Well, this commentator said his friend was filled, filled with joy. Those who have forgiven much, love much. Those who have stood at the mouth of hell marvel at the gospel and rejoice with exceeding and great joy at what we have in Christ. I think Spurgeon said, if we think lightly of hell, we will think lightly of the cross. Last, let me just squeeze in a story from the life of John Newton. I've talked about him many times, but I read from a book that I got for Christmas, and I found some just new information about Newton's conversion. I can't help but share this bit of information. I also may have misunderstood quite when he was converted, so I'm just going to tell a little bit about Newton. I love uh, his conversion story. Uh, most of you will know his, his story. He grew up with a wonderful godly mother. She was very sick, uh, and so I think she knew that her time was short with her son, but she didn't waste, waste her time. She did not uh, squander it. She poured into uh, John Newton, even though she was so, so sick. She catechized him. She taught him the gospel, taught him theology, taught him hymns. Uh, just pray that he'd become a preacher. She died when uh, Newton was six, and she was in her 20s. He was almost seven. So basically from seven to his early 20s, especially his teen years and early 20s, man, John Newton lived a mess of a life, sinful, sinful to the core. This is what he says about himself. He said, I thought that surely there never was nor could be such a sinner as myself. I mean, he truly believed himself to be the chief of sinners. He finds himself on that uh, boat called the Greyhound, and they encounter that massive storm uh, at sea. And he didn't even know how to swim, as many sailors didn't in that day. And he's frantically pumping uh, water off of this boat. And he remembers, I think, the gospel from his mother. And he cries out, Lord, have mercy upon us, is what he says. But he's, apparently he was doubting. He was wondering if God would forgive so vile a sinner as himself. But at least he, he prayed and cried out for, for help and deliverance. The storm lasted for 11 days. After 11 days, they survived the storm. They had to throw all their, uh, I think, food overboard. And they had this tattered boat that's just sort of floating along. Newton finds a Bible on board the, sh the ship. He begins to read from the Gospel of Luke, and he finds himself reading uh, the prodigal son story in Luke 15. And certainly he could relate with the prodigal son in that story. But he said he was moved by the compassion of the father who you know, races out to meet the son. 
At one point, they think they're going to perhaps starve, but finally they see land and they make their way to land. And John Newton, as soon as he got to land, he makes his way to the nearest church. And I just found this moving. This is what they wrote. Once in port, John made his way to the nearest church. Falling on his knees, he worshiped the Lord and offered heartfelt thanksgiving for his deliverance. By the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, John repented wholeheartedly of his sinful, misspent life and embraced by faith the merits of Christ as his Savior for his salvation. What's his response? Overjoyed with the sweet freedom of forgiveness of sins, he pledged his life in service to God to be the Lord's forever and only the Lord's. So judgment is necessary. In light of our sin, judgment is delayed and we should be moved and stirred by the grace of God. Judgment is absolutely, utterly certain and it will be thorough and permanent. And there's two ways that we can stand before God. We can stand before God in our own righteousness. That's a terrifying thing. But we can stand before God with a mediator and we can be covered in his perfect spotless righteousness. So now we're going to transition to communion. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 23 to 28. You can turn there if you want. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to read verses 23 to 28 of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, sorry. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 28. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we first would say, if you're not a Christian, we would ask you to abstain from coming to partake of the Lord's Supper. Uh, you do not need the symbol, you need the reality. And you can do that in your seat. You can turn from your sins and rest in the finished work of Jesus. But if you are a Christian and you're not in living in unrepentant sin and you're not at odds with another Christian or another person, we would ask that after examining yourself that you would come and partake uh, of the Lord's Supper. And hopefully we will, it will be extra sweet today on a day when we consider uh, God's judgment. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, these are two weighty parables, and uh, I, I do pray that we would have an appropriate response to them, wouldn't be trivial about them. Uh, I do pray that we would be gripped by these truths, that we would be stirred and moved by the gospel for us as Christians. I pray that the gospel really would be sweet today, that as we, yes, we come broken of our sins to the table, and I pray that we would seriously would be deeply joyful as we consider the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. And Father, I pray that, I'm sure that there are some in this room that do not yet know you, and I pray that they would be convicted of their sins, and they would be shown their need of a Savior, and you'd give them the faith to believe the gospel. We ask this all in Jesus' name.